Our Father, as we turn to these words of our Lord Jesus this evening, we pray that even as we've just sung a, a few moments ago, that you would stir our hope and that you would give us grace. Give me grace, we pray, as I speak on these challenging verses. And give us all grace as we hear your word to receive it, to respond to it in the right way by believing all that our Lord Jesus has to say to us, uh, trusting in him and living in obedience to his word for your glory. In his name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, it'd be great if you could uh, please have a, a Bible open there at Luke chapter 21. As uh, This evening, we're going to focus on those words from verse 20 through to 28. And we're coming back to this next chunk of this prophetic discourse by Jesus, which hopefully you remember was all kicked off by a fairly innocuous conversation amongst the disciples. Uh, they were leaving the temple. They were heading from the city of Jerusalem over to the Mount of Olives with Jesus. And they were chatting with one another as they walked along. And one of the disciples looked up at the temple and simply made the comment about how beautiful this temple building was a truly amazing structure maybe the most beautiful building in the world at that time and then when Jesus heard that comment he responded with these shocking words he said as for these things that you see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is saying the day is coming when this amazing temple is going to be knocked completely flat. And inevitably that diverts the conversation in a different direction, doesn't it? They had been talking simply about architecture, but now the conversation becomes a, a bit more complex. They're going to talk about prophecy. They're going to talk about judgment. They're going to talk about the end of the age. And the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, as we saw last time, it's important we understand that the disciples have wrongly assumed that the, the coming destruction of the temple and the final judgment are one and the same event because for them the end of the temple meant the end of the world but you see Jesus makes it clear doesn't he back in verse 9 that the destruction of the temple and the final judgment are actually two separate events uh, they're related to one another as we'll see but they are separate events and so he says these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Uh, Daryl Bock, a, a Bible commentator, rightly says that we see in these words of Jesus that in the collapse of Jerusalem there is a preview, but with less intensity, of what the end 
will be like. These two events are related, but they are separate. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, is a localized temporal judgment on one people. The final judgment, when Jesus returns, will be a global, eternal judgment upon all people groups. And in tonight's sermon, we're going to look at these next two little paragraphs in this discourse by Jesus. And in verses 20 to 24, Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there, which would take place in the year AD 70. And then in the next paragraph, verses 25 to 28, he looks further ahead in time and he's speaking there about his second coming. So first of all, let's look at what Jesus says about the destruction of Jerusalem there in verses 20 to 24. And I'd like us to notice a number of themes that just come to the surface in these words of Jesus. So first of all, and most obviously, what strikes us as we listen to these words of Jesus is the severity of God's judgment. The severity of God's judgment. It is a truly horrific scene that Jesus describes to us here, isn't it? He speaks of the desolation that is going to take place on that day. He describes those days as days of vengeance. That is, they are days when God's vengeance against these people's sin is going to be poured out. Jesus says it will be a day of distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. People will fall by the edge of the sword. Others will be led away into captivity amongst the nations. The whole city of Jerusalem, not just the temple, but indeed the whole city, will be trampled underfoot. And as you know, it all came true about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. The Roman Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus who would later become the emperor himself. He sent him to Jerusalem with a huge army. And in the April of AD 70, they laid siege to the the city of Jerusalem. At that time, the city was filled to the brim with people because it coincided with the Passover feast. And so there was many, many more people in Jerusalem then than would normally be the case. That siege lasted about five months in total until the city eventually fell. And one historian of that day, a man called Josephus, writes that about 1.1 million people died in the siege. A further 97,000 were taken prisoner and carried off into captivity in the nations. Now there is some question mark about how accurate those numbers are, but whichever way you look at it, it was an utterly, utterly devastating defeat. And it makes us ask, doesn't it, why did Jerusalem face such a terrible judgment from God? What had the people of this city done to deserve all of this? And earlier on in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already told us the reason why. Remember back in chapter 19, when Jesus was riding towards Jerusalem, a few days before he spoke these words, a few days earlier, he'd ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and he'd looked up and he'd seen the city and he wept over it. And speaking to the city of Jerusalem, he said, 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And you see, Jesus says that Jerusalem would face this act of God's judgment for one main reason, one main reason, that they did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, the promised Messiah, the one who they were supposed to be waiting for, came to them. He visited Jerusalem in person. He performed miracles in their streets. He, he preached in the temple day after day after day. He made it absolutely clear to them that he is the Messiah. He is the king that God had promised to send in order to save and rule his people forever. And they rejected him. The Apostle John puts it like this. He came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. Instead of welcoming their Messiah... Instead of bowing before him as king, instead of trusting in him to forgive them and to save them and to make them a part of his eternal kingdom, they arrested him, they beat him, they spat upon him, and then in the end they nailed him to a cross to die. And Jesus says that is why they would face this outpouring of the judgment of God, because they didn't accept Jesus. They did not know the time of their visitation. And if, as we have seen, the destruction of Jerusalem back in AD 70 was but a preview of the final judgment, well, we can barely even begin to comprehend what that final judgment will be like. These words of Jesus are intended to impress upon us the severity of God's judgment. And you see, it's meant to make us consider if this is the severity of judgment that they faced for not accepting Jesus hardening their heart against him and rejecting him. Well, what have I done with Jesus? What have I done with him? Have I accepted him as my king? Am I trusting in him to forgive me? Am I bowing before him as king? And by grace, have I been brought into his kingdom forever? You see, these words of Jesus show us the severity of God's judgment and therefore, how urgent a matter it is to turn to him whilst we still have time. And then secondly, notice what we see in these words of Jesus concerning the depth of Christ's compassion. These words are not just filled with the judgment of God, but also the mercy of Christ. And the, the compassion that he has towards his people. We shouldn't miss the point that there is mercy, first of all, in the fact that these coming days of vengeance would be in order to fulfill all that is written. End of verse 22. And so this judgment of God did not just come out of the blue as it were. No, down the centuries, God had been speaking to his people through the prophets. He'd been sending these loving warnings about what would happen to people if they did not turn away from their sin and if they did not turn back to God in repentance and in faith. Time after time, God had sent prophet after prophet to them, giving people every chance to escape from this coming judgment. 
In his great mercy, he sent his word so that people could know how to be saved from the judgment that they deserved. And of course, God is doing exactly the same today, isn't he? Because still today, we can say that God's judgment against human sin is being held back. It is delayed. So that in the meantime, there is the opportunity for the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus to go out into the world. And for men and women and boys and girls to escape from that judgment simply by trusting in Jesus. That's what the Apostle Peter tells us, isn't it? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And you know, today, this evening, if you're not yet a Christian, God is being patient with you. God is giving you an opportunity again to hear his word, to hear what is written, so that you can come to Jesus. You can be forgiven. You can be safe in him. And that compassion of Jesus for his people shines through in these verses, doesn't it? Even as he is warning of judgment. And he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out, of, out in the country enter it. You see, Jesus doesn't want his people to be caught up in this turmoil. He gives them very clear instructions about what exactly they need to do when they see those Roman armies approaching. Instinctively, people might think that the best thing to do would be, would be to go and hide in the city, within the city walls. And Jesus says, no, that is the last thing that you want to do. Because Jerusalem will be the focal point of this localized outpouring of judgment. And so when those days come, when you see the Roman armies approaching, get away from Jerusalem, go into the hills, go to the mountains, and you will be safe there. Out of compassion for his people, he doesn't want them caught up in any unnecessary suffering. And only those who ignored the words of Jesus and ignored the warnings of the prophets would be caught up in this judgment. Of course, the same is true of the final judgment as well, isn't it? It is only those who have hardened their hearts against God and ignored his word who will be caught, will, who will be caught up in it. And anyone at all who listens to his word and does what it says by trusting in Jesus will be absolutely safe. And there's great compassion as well in verse 23, isn't there? Jesus says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It's a lovely verse, isn't it? Jesus has particular compassion and sympathy for those who are especially weak, especially vulnerable in the midst of turbulent days. And remember, as Jesus is speaking these words, it's only a few days before he's going to be crucified. And yet he's thinking not about his own needs, but rather he's thinking about the needs of pregnant women and little babies 40 years in the future. It is remarkable compassion, isn't it? And it reassures us, doesn't it, that whatever turbulent days we pass through in our lives, and no matter how weak, no matter how vulnerable we might be, in Jesus there is one who sympathizes with us. 
one who has compassion for us. And then thirdly in this paragraph, notice the providence of God's purposes. The the providence of God's purposes. Now from a human point of view, all those events leading up to and surrounding AD 70 would be terribly chaotic, wouldn't they? There would be great distress upon the earth. Jesus has spoken of how nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilences and terrors and signs from heaven. And so from a human point of view, it would look like everything was just descending into mayhem. Everything was out of control. And yet as we listen to these words of Jesus, we cannot escape the fact that from his point of view, everything is under control. And you get that impression, don't you, from the certainty with which Jesus speaks about these coming events, still a generation away, how these events are all going to unfold. Jesus is saying 40 years in advance, this will happen and then this will happen and then when such and such a thing happens, then you need to do this. And you see, don't you, from Jesus' point of view, these events are not chaotic. Now, this will all unfold exactly as he predicted. It will all be within the providence of God's unfolding purposes. And that is especially true when we come to the final part of verse 24. Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem will be instrumental, says Jesus, in ushering in this new phase of history. A phase of history that Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. That's a difficult phrase for us to understand. It might mean a period of history when the Gentiles will have their victory over Israel. But I think that it is more likely to mean the days in which the gospel will go out into the Gentile world. And in those days, many Gentile people will come to accept the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, as their saviour. The Gentiles will be grafted in to the people of God. It's something that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 11, isn't it? How the Jewish rejection of Jesus would lead to the gospel going to the Gentiles. So he writes in Romans 11, through their trespass, their sin, their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so we see, even in the destruction of Jerusalem, the providence of God's purposes at work. Even in a world like that, even in a world where everything looks chaotic, everything looks out of control, God is still working his good purposes together throughout history. And despite Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus, the gospel will nonetheless advance in the world, says Jesus. And many Gentiles, people like you and me, many Gentiles in this next period of history, says Jesus, will come to know him as their savior in these days of the Gentiles in which we now live. So we see God's purposes unfolding in these verses. And that brings us then to verses 25 to 28. And in the verses we've looked at so far, Jesus has been speaking about the events of AD 70. But there's a change here. There's a change of focus because Jesus now looks further into the future and he's looking forward now to his second coming. 
something that is obviously still in the future, even from our point of view. And in some ways, this will be a similar kind of event. As I, I said earlier, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the second coming of Jesus are related events. One is the preview of the other. Both bring with them an outpouring of God's judgment against sin. And just as AD 70 would be preceded by great upheaval in the world, political upheaval, military upheaval, even meteorological upheaval as well, Jesus says that his second coming is also going to be preceded by very dramatic events taking place. And so Jesus says there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It has to be said these are difficult words to understand, difficult words to interpret. And the question is basically is Jesus speaking literally here, or is he speaking figuratively? Now, it could be the case that he's speaking figuratively here. There are various times in the Old Testament when the sea is used as a picture of the nations of the world. You get the, the picture, don't you? They're powerful. They're somewhat unpredictable. They're always changing, always coming and going, like the sea. And there are parts in the Old Testament as well where the heavenly bodies, the sun and moon and stars, are sometimes used as symbols for earthly leaders. Again, you can imagine the, the imagery that has been used in those cases, can't you? They are majestic in their appearance. They're raised higher than the rest of us. They look down on everything. So is Jesus speaking figuratively here? Is he using that kind of language that the, the prophets used? And he's speaking here, therefore, about political, military upheaval taking place in the world in the days leading up to his return? Or is he speaking more literally here about great signs, great disturbances in the natural realm in the days shortly before his second coming? So literal earthquakes, meteors and eclipses and that kind of thing, tsunamis, tidal waves, all that sort of thing. Well, in all honesty, we don't really know which way to, to read these verses, and we should therefore be very cautious about trying to be too specific about what exactly this is going to look like when it plays out. I think William Hendrickson is right when he says, until this prophetic panorama becomes history, we should probably not know how much of this description must be taken literally and how much figuratively. But whatever it will look like in reality, after these very dramatic events have taken place, Jesus says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And here he's drawing on the language of Daniel chapter 7. It's a great prophecy in the Old Testament. It, it speaks of this figure called the Son of Man, this royal figure, this individual who receives a great kingdom and receives authority from God himself. And he arrives with superhuman majesty. He comes with divine glory. 
Then he arrives with all authority in order to establish his kingdom finally and forever and to vindicate his people, every member of his kingdom. That is what Jesus says his return will be like. It will fulfill those majestic words of Daniel chapter 7. It will be like nothing we've ever seen before. And what should Christ's people do when they start to see these things that Jesus has been speaking about? As they see these things taking place in the world around them. And it has to be said that for the, for the rest of mankind, those things will be a cause of great distress. Jesus says, doesn't he, that on the earth there will be distress of nations in perplexity. There will be people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. And yet the Christian is to have a very different response when they they see these very things taking place before them. And Jesus says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And you see, as Christians, if and when we see these events taking place before us, it should not surprise us. It should not alarm us unduly. We're not to be knocked sideways when we see the world in turmoil around us and we see persecution taking place in the world as if something strange is happening to us. No, this is what Jesus has said will happen in the world. All of history will be marked by these events, even leading up to this intensification of them in the days preceding his return. But as we see these events taking place, Jesus says it should make us stand tall as Christians. It should make us look to the heavens with eager anticipation that soon the Lord will come again. The Son of Man will return on the clouds just as he left. He will come again. And when we see these kinds of events happening, we know that our final deliverance is drawing near. What a comfort that is. Soon all of our suffering is going to be over. All of our sin will be gone forever. Death itself will be no more. As Jesus puts it, redemption is drawing near. Our hope will be fulfilled. And at last our faith will give way to sight. When we will see Jesus face to face. And of course we don't know when this is going to be. No one knows when this is going to be. It is pointless for us to try and speculate dates and times and such like. Maybe it will be within our lifetime. Maybe it won't be. But whether we live to see this with our own eyes before we die, the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't he, Romans 13, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. However long you've been a Christian, the finish line is closer now than when you first put your trust in Jesus. And the day of the coming of the Son of Man is fixed in God's diary. Every day we're getting a a step closer to it. And do you realize there has never been a Christian alive in all of history who has been closer to the second coming of Jesus than we are this evening. The final redemption is drawing nearer and nearer. So straighten up 
Stand tall as a Christian. Raise your heads. Because Jesus is coming back. And as we close, consider this last of all. How should we live in the present, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back? What does it look like practically to live a life of constant readiness? Constant expectation for the return of Jesus. And if you glance ahead in your Bibles, you'll see that's what Jesus goes on to say in the the final part of this great discourse. And that's what we're going to look at next week. That's if we're still here. Let's pray. Father, we've grappled this evening with this momentous paragraph or paragraphs of Jesus. And really, we've only been able to scratch the surface of these words and all that they mean. But we thank you for what we have seen. And we recognize, first of all, the severity of your judgment against all those who finally reject Jesus. But we thank you that in your mercy towards us, that you have given us your word, you've given us the gospel of Jesus, so that we could know what to do in order to be safe from judgment. And so we we pray for any here who have not yet trusted in Jesus themselves, that they would believe his words, and that they would trust in him whilst there is still opportunity. And we look ahead to the second coming of Jesus. Father, we pray that Jesus would return soon. And we thank you that the day is closer now than it has ever been. And even as we live in a world that is always filled with calamity and suffering and perplexing times, thank you that you are the God who is in control. All of your purposes are working together. You're sovereign over everything that takes place in this world. And you're working even for the good of your people. We thank you for the compassion of our Lord Jesus that we see shining through in these words. That he cares for us. And we can cast all our anxieties upon him. And we can know that he sympathizes with us in our suffering, in our difficulties. And even as we live in a world like this, help us to do what Jesus says here. Help us to straighten up. Help us to stand tall as Christian men and women. Help us to raise our heads because with every passing day, our redemption is drawing ever nearer. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.